Chapter Four of Good Stories for Great Birthdays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Good Stories for Great Birthdays by Francis Jenkins Olcott. Section Four, October the Thirtieth. John Adams, the Son of Liberty. Second President of the United States. I have passed the Rubicon, swim or sink, live or die, survive or perish with my country, is my unalterable determination. John Adams Independence Day I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, tend illuminations, from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward, for evermore. John Adams John Adams was born in Braintree, or Quincy, Massachusetts, October thirtieth, 1735. He was a member of the committee that framed the Declaration of Independence, and he signed the Declaration. He was Commissioner to France, 1778, and was Ambassador to England, 1785. He became the second President of the United States in 1796. He died on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the 4th of July, 1826. A Son of Liberty there was no loftier genius nor purer patriot during the struggle for independence than John Adams. He was born at Braintree, now part of Quincy, Massachusetts. He was descended from Henry Adams, who came to America during the reign of Charles I. On his mother's side, he was descended from John Alden, the pilgrim father who came over on the Mayflower. Thus, from both sides of his house, John Adams inherited staunch, fearless English blood and love of independence. He went to school in Braintree and later graduated from Harvard University, after which he studied law and was admitted to the bar. He married Abigail Smith of Weymouth, Massachusetts. They made their home in Boston. It is not possible here to tell all that John Adams did for America. He was an ardent patriot, a son of liberty, serving the country at the risk of his life. He was a delegate to the Continental Congress. He was a member of the committee appointed to frame the Declaration of Independence. He signed the Declaration. He was sent abroad on foreign missions. He was elected Vice President, and afterward called to be Second President of the United States. He lived to see his son, John Quincy Adams, made Sixth President of the United States. He died on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence at the great age of 91. Benson J. Lossing and Other Sources The Adams Family John Adams was not the only great American patriot in his family. His cousin, Samuel Adams, was a popular and fearless leader in the movement for independence. His activities were so feared by England that the government issued orders for his arrest and trial for high treason. Abigail Adams, John Adams's wife, was one of the noble American women who helped to win the war for independence. 
she kept her husband informed of the movements of the british around boston while he was attending the continental congress she wrote him many patriotic letters which are inspiring reading to-day she signed some of them portia so that if they fell into the hands of the enemy no one could tell who wrote them she sent many of the letters to her husband by secret messengers their son john quincy adams became sixth president of the united states his son charles francis adams and the latter's two sons charles francis and henry adams served the country in important offices at home and abroad they were historians and statesmen john and abigail adams their son and his two sons kept diaries or wrote letters or wrote letters memoirs and biographies which form a vivid and intimate story of many historical events dating from the war of independence down nearly to our own time thus america has to thank the adams family for historical records of great importance aid to the sister colony it was a clear and frosty night that night when the moonbeams fell on the tea thrown overboard by the boston tea party paul revere all booted and spurred was ready for a famous ride not the one to lexington but to philadelphia this time soon he was off and away galloping southward spreading as he rode along the astonishing news that boston town had at last defied king george there were public rejoicings everywhere as the news was passed along this said john adams exultingly is the most magnificent movement of all this destruction of the tea is so bold so daring so firm intrepid and inflexible what measures will the ministry take in consequence of this will they resent it will they dare to resent it will they punish us how john adams did not have to wait long to find out how for king george decided to punish the people of brave boston town by starving them into submission the boston port bill was passed in england a british fleet blockaded boston harbour no ship could go in or out all supplies of food and fuel were cut off the boston folk suffered starvation disease and death but they would not submit their misery became almost unendurable then it was that massachusetts sister colonies roused themselves samuel adams of boston sent a circular letter to each of the colonies asking for help food fuel and money came pouring in all that summer boston suffering impoverished boston lay upon every loyal american heart each province county city town neighbourhood sent its contribution wyndham connecticut began the work of relief and sent in with a cordial letter of applause and sympathy a small flock of sheep two hundred and fifty-eight sheep was wyndham's notion of a small flock new jersey soon wrote that she would be glad to know which would be more acceptable to a suffering sister cash or produce cash replied boston is perfectly convenient massachusetts farmers supplied grain by the barrel and bushel the marblehead fishermen forwarded two hundred and twenty four quintels of good eating fish one barrel and three quarters of good olive oil with money to boot north carolina promptly sent two sloop loads of provisions south carolina's first gift was one hundred casks of rice and baltimore town contributed three thousand bushels of corn twenty barrels of rye flour 
two barrels of pork and twenty barrels of bread virginia there seemed to be no end to virginia's gifts and as the cool season approached the farmers could be more liberal flocks of fat sheep and droves of oxen together with hundreds of cords of wood grain and money in plenty helped to relieve the suffering town from new york city they came and from maryland maine connecticut rhode island from the three colonies on the delaware and from every little mountain town in new hampshire and vermont as for canada from cold and remote quebec came some wheat and from montreal a hundred pounds sterling the letters that accompanied the gifts and the grateful answers from the boston committee would fill a large volume boston is suffering in the common cause said her sister colonies if need be said george washington of virginia i will raise one thousand men subsist them at my own expense and march myself at their head for the relief of boston james parton and other sources retold a famous date september the fifth seventeen seventy four what a famous date in american history and in the history of the whole world on that day met for the first time the continental congress of america from colony after colony the delegates came riding into philadelphia george washington of virginia came with fiery patrick henry and edmund pendleton one of virginia's noblest sons there came caesar rodney burly and big bold and bluff with thomas mckean and george reed all from the three counties on the delaware and roger sherman with silas dean of connecticut and john jay and livingston of new york from rhode island new hampshire new jersey pennsylvania maryland and south carolina the eager delegates came riding into the city of brotherly love and of course john adams and samuel adams representing the suffering colony of massachusetts bay were on hand when congress opened among its first acts the first continental congress sent a letter to general gage an address to the people of great britain one to the people of quebec and a petition to king george setting forth the grievances of the american colonists the violation of their rights as free englishmen and asking for justice but strongly urging a renewal of harmony and union between the colonies and the mother country england american histories tell how king george disregarded that petition american histories also tell how william pitt and other great english statesmen nobly defended america as you may see if you read the story of william pitt on page ninety three what a glorious morning when paul revere came galloping into lexington after warning the countryside that the british were coming to seize the powder and shot he roused samuel adams and john hancock who were staying with friends paul revere was come to warn them also for the british general gage had given orders for their arrest and intended to send them to england to be tried for high treason the british government was specially afraid of john hancock one of the most daring and active of the boston patriots the terrible desperado he was called by that government when he and samuel adams were escaping from lexington and hurrying across some fields samuel adams exclaimed oh what a glorious morning is this it was the morning of the battle of lexington when the shot was fired that was heard round the world after the second continental congress opened john hancock was chosen to preside while the congress discussed how to defend the country 
john to samuel new england was in arms lexington and concord had been fought and boston was being besieged by the new england army the congress was discussing the defence of the whole country there were some members who wished the congress to take over the new england army and appoint a commander-in-chief it was then that john adams met his cousin samuel adams in the state house yard this was the way john adams tells it Quote, what shall we do to get congress to adopt our army said samuel adams to john adams i will tell you what i am determined to do said john to samuel i have taken pains enough to bring you to agree upon something but you will not agree upon anything and now i am determined to take my own way let come what will come well said samuel what is your scheme said john to samuel i will go to congress this morning and move that a day be appointed to take into consideration the adoption of the army before boston the appointment of a general and officers and i will nominate washington for commander-in-chief a gentleman from virginia so it happened that john adams rose in his seat and moved that the congress should adopt the army of new england men and appoint a commander-in-chief adding that he had in mind someone for that high command a gentleman from virginia who is among us and very well known to all of us a gentleman whose skill and experience as an officer whose independent fortune great talents and excellent universal character would command the approbation of all america and unite the cordial exertions of all the colonies better than any other person in the union every one knew whom john adams meant and george washington who was sitting near the door was so overcome by modesty that he sprang up and darted into the library close by but his modesty did not prevent his election he was unanimously chosen commander-in-chief while the army of new england men was adopted by congress and named the continental army later when washington's appointment was announced in the congress he rose in his place and said most earnestly since the congress desire i will enter upon the momentous duty and exert every power i possess in their service and for the support of the glorious cause but i beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that i this day declare with the utmost sincerity i do not think myself equal to the command i am honoured with but far-sighted john adams was delighted he was enthusiastic there is something charming to me in the conduct of washington he wrote to a friend a gentleman of one of the first fortunes upon the continent leaving his delicious retirement his family and friends sacrificing his ease and hazarding all in the cause of his country his views are noble and disinterested he declared when he accepted the mighty trust that he would lay before us an exact account of his expenses and not accept a shilling pay and to abigail adams his wife far off in braintree guarding her children from battle and murder and from sudden death john adams wrote i can now inform you that the congress have made choice of the modest and virtuous the amiable generous and brave george washington esq to be general of the american army he wrote thus joyously on the seventeenth day of june while on that very day abigail adams and little john quincy adams were standing on a hilltop watching charlestown burn and fall into ashes the boy who became president 
"'My head is much too fickle. "'My thoughts are running after birds' eggs, play, and trifles, "'till I get vexed with myself,' wrote little John Quincy Adams, nine years old, to his father, John Adams. "'Those were terrible times. "'Little John Quincy's thoughts were running after other things besides birds' eggs. "'He could hear the thunder of British cannon and the answering roar of American guns. "'There was fighting very near him. "'From a hilltop he could see the battle raging.' He knew that some of the American boys who were fighting were from Braintree. Some time before, little John Quincy and his mother, Abigail Adams, had escaped from their home in Boston and had taken refuge in Braintree, which was not far away. Now they were living in constant terror for fear the British should attack Braintree. His father, John Adams, was not there to protect him. He was attending the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. On the 17th of June, 1775, the British cannonading began in the direction of Charlestown. John Quincy and his mother climbed the hill and watched the battle. With terror-stricken eyes, the boys saw Charlestown go up in flames and fall in ashes. And as for Abigail Adams, she trembled with fear lest the British should attack Braintree next. And then, what would become of John Quincy and the other children? So John Quincy and his mother watched the famous battle of Bunker Hill, and while they were listening to the cannon and the guns, their beloved friend, Dr. Joseph Warren, the noble patriot who had joined the American forces as volunteer, fell mortally wounded. And when the news of his death reached Braintree, John Quincy burst into tears, for Dr. Warren had been the family physician and had once saved the boy from having a broken finger amputated and through those exciting times, John Quincy was a staunch boy patriot. When he was only nine years old, he became his mother's postboy, riding to Boston and back, eleven or more miles each way, to get news for her. And every morning before he climbed out of bed, he did as his mother had taught him. After he had said the Lord's Prayer, he recited, How sleep the brave who sink to rest by all their country's wishes blessed, when spring with dewy fingers cold returns to deck their hallowed mould, she there shall dress a sweeter sod than fancy's feet have ever trod. By fairy hands their knell is rung, by forms unseen their dirges sung. There honour comes, a pilgrim grey, to watch the turf that wraps their clay, and freedom shall a while repair to dwell a weeping hermit there. Thus the boy patriot did what he could, and when he grew up he served his country so well in many important matters that he was called to her highest office and became the sixth president of the United States. How shall the stars be placed? On that great day when the Congress of the United States adopted the stars and stripes as our national flag, it resolved that the Union should be thirteen stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation and a new constellation it was. Thirteen stars of the thirteen states united as one, a constellation destined to shine on all the world, liberty enlightening the world. But how should the stars be grouped upon the flag? That was the question. John Adams suggested that they should be arranged in the form of the constellation Lyra, the beautiful cluster of stars shining in our northern night. But the new constellation of American stars could not be arranged thus to look well. So it was decided to place them in a circle, for a circle has no end, and it was hoped that as the country grew larger, 
adding more states and a new star for each state, that the circle would widen. And it has widened and widened, until there is no longer any room for a circle on our flag, but spangled like the sky at night, it has become the star-spangled banner. The Mysterious Stranger A mysterious foreign stranger suddenly appeared in New York City after John Adams had retired from the presidency. He was handsome, with beaming hazel eyes and flashing white teeth. He was graceful, with courtly manners. He called himself George Martin. But what his real name was, or what his mysterious purpose was, only a few people knew. He was dined and toasted by New York officials. He went to the city of Washington on his secret mission. He was granted private interviews by the President and the Secretary of State. He talked much about his friends Catherine the Great of Russia and William Pitt of England. He seemed to know the secret plots and political intrigues of Europe. Then he vanished as mysteriously as he had come. A few weeks later, John Adams heard the astounding news. The stranger was no other than the celebrated South American patriot, Don Francisco de Miranda. He had sailed away secretly from New York in a little ship laden with arms and ammunition. And what was worse, he had taken with him a band of young American men, some of them mere boys, and he was sailing toward the Spanish main with the intention of freeing South America from Spanish rule. He had taken with him young William Steuben Smith, John Adams's grandson. Young Smith was a college boy, very bright and courageous, and thirsty for adventure. "'What do you think were my sensations and reflections?' wrote John Adams to a friend. "'I shudder to this moment at the recollection of them. I saw the ruin of my only daughter and her good-hearted enthusiastic husband, and had no other hope or wish or prayer than that the ship with my grandson in it might be sunk in a storm in the Gulf Stream.' For young William Steuben Smith's father was surveyor of the port of New York, and had allowed Miranda's ship to clear with arms and ammunition in its hold, to be used against Spain, with whom we were at peace. Then came to John Adams the terrible news that Spanish armed vessels had captured some of the American boys. His grandson had been captured, and thrown into a dungeon in a dark, filthy fortress in Venezuela, he was to be tried as a pirate taken on the high seas, and without doubt he would be hanged. The Spanish ambassador, who had known John Adams in Europe, hastened to offer his services. He would intercede with Spain for the grandson, he said. No, said John Adams to a friend, he should share the fate of his colleagues, comrades, and fellow prisoners. But happily it was all a great mistake. Young Smith was not hanged as a pirate, he had not been captured at all. Instead, he was sailing gaily on in Miranda's mystery ship. He had been made aide-de-camp and lieutenant-colonel, and had donned Miranda's brilliant uniform. For the story of what happened further to the mystery ship, see page 335. His last toast. It was the last day of June, 1826. In five days, it would be the 4th of July, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. John Adams had been one of the committee to frame the Declaration. A neighbour was sitting with John Adams in his home in Quincy, that used to be Braintree. Ninety and one years old was John Adams. The neighbour was to be orator at the annual banquet on the 4th of July. 
he had called to ask John Adams to compose the toast. "'Independence for ever!' said John Adams. "'But would he not wish to add something further to the toast?' asked the neighbour. "'Not a word,' replied John Adams. The 4th of July dawned. The great patriot lay dying. At the setting of the sun, those who stood beside him heard him whisper, "'Thomas Jefferson still lives!' As the sun sank out of sight, a loud cheering came from the village. It was the shouts of the people at the words of his toast, Independence for ever. The cheering echoed through the room where John Adams was, but before its last sounds could die away, the great patriot had passed into history and eternity on the 4th of July, on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. End of chapter 4